going to be in Luke chapter number 8 this evening, Luke chapter number 8, and uh, we're going to look at a, a particular part of uh, the ministry of Christ, and uh, one in which I, I love reading about this one, but also the one where Jesus walks on the water, but this one, uh, particularly in Luke chapter 8, verse 22 through verse 25, and I've titled the message, Where is Your Faith? Where is Your Faith? And uh, as I reread and studied through this text, it's a challenge to me just with that question itself. Where is your faith? And uh, we'll see the context of that question in a minute. Um, but I think it's a good challenge and reminder for us as we look at the text together. So Luke eight twenty two. Notice in this ministry of Jesus, we see that uh, the Bible says, One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filled, and they were filled with water, filling with water, and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, "Master, master, we are perishing." And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. He said to them, "Where is your faith?" And they were afraid, and they marvelled, saying one to another. Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? I love reading through the ministry of Christ, and um, someday in the future I'll tackle exegetically, going through, expositionally through one of the Gospels here at the church. But I want to just take a brief pause and look at this passage of Scripture, because we look at the question Jesus asks, and it's a great question that he asks his disciples. Where is your faith? That was a very pointed question to them in that moment, but as we read it today, it is also a very pointed question to us as to where our faith is. Now, when it comes to faith, it's often common, even in our Christian life, that we can struggle maybe in the practicalities and day-to-day and things we experience when it comes to faith. Now, understand that perhaps we need to know more about faith. Um, Remember that we are saved by what? We're saved by faith, right? Right? And that faith in particular, it itself is the gift of God. Ephesians 2 and verse 8 tells us that. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And so what's fascinating about the grace of God is that he grants us the faith which we need in order to believe and exercise and live out in our Christian life. And so uh, he grants us faith. We believe in Christ with that faith. We are saved by the very gift that he gives to us. Uh, I think we've made clear going through Ephesians that all of salvation from beginning to end and everything in the middle, it is all of grace. It's all of God. But having the gift of faith is not necessarily the same as walking or living by faith, although that's what we use, right? Uh, We've been gifted faith, but walking and living by faith involves growth in that faith he's given to us. And so this is where we see the great question come to the disciples because the disciples through the ministry of Jesus You understand that as you read through the Gospels, they're still learning more about him. The moment he called them on the shores of Galilee to come follow him, they weren't just downloaded with all the knowledge and they just perfectly walked with him like they should or had perfect faith like they should in trusting every scenario. And we see that in this text, and especially in the later part of this text, how they're still learning about him. Now, we all come to circumstances and experiences just like these disciples. The storm on the sea is a great picture of any trial or trouble that we may face in our own life. That's the parallel. And with every trial or trouble, 
we must come back to the central point of it all. What is the central point of any trial or trouble that we experience in our life? The central point of it is a test of our faith. Because trials, they come under the sovereign providence of God Almighty. They're not random. There's not circumstance. They come from Him. And so where is our faith in these times? Has your faith ever been lacking or doubtful maybe in certain things you've experienced? Maybe our faith has been in the wrong place, the wrong source. Has our faith ever wavered to some degree going through some kind of a storm? I think we would all say yes to those questions because in our Christian life, we ourselves, like disciples, we are growing more and more in learning to depend on Christ and even some of the hard things that we experience. So as we look at this account of Jesus calming the storm, there's many truths that we could glean, but I want to focus primarily upon faith in this narrative. So in our notes, you'll see four headings I want to bring out to your attention from this passage. Number one is this, we see the problem of the storm. That's the big issue here, the problem of the storm. And we notice a couple things about it. One is that it was a sudden threat to the disciples. Sudden meaning it came out of nowhere. It was unexpected. They didn't expect to go through this storm when they went through it. Now, we know Jesus and his disciples, they've been ministering uh, to the people around the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus did the majority of his ministry, was in the Galilee region and the towns and cities around the sea. And so upon ministering in that day, in verse 22, we see that in one of those days, he said to them, let's go to the other side of the lake. Now, the disciples were fishermen, majority of them, right? So they knew this sea very well. This was their job, to be on this sea. This is where their life, livelihood consisted. And so to go to the other side of the lake was pretty much a routine trip, but it still required some diligence. It must have been good weather, apparently, because it was good enough to get into the boat and sail out onto the sea to the other side, right? But we keep in mind that the sea here is not some small little lake. It's not like Lee Creek. You can see the other side real quick and just get over there real fast. Uh, The Sea of Galilee is a pretty big body of water. They didn't have motorized boats. They had uh, wooden sailboats, Uh, and and so that's, that's what they use. The sea today is 12 miles by 6 miles, and it's 200 feet deep. And many believe that the sea actually was bigger back then because we know how sometimes uh, lakes and seas, they, they go up and down a little bit. But it wasn't unusual or out of the ordinary to cross the sea for these men. It'd be like me saying to you, let's jump in the car and let's drive north through the Boston Mountain. Let's go to Fayetteville, right? You'd see no problem with that. That's just a routine trip. It's not that big of a deal. But on this particular normal trip across the sea... It became not so normal in verse 23. What happens? The Bible says a windstorm came down on the lake, and this is common in the Galilee region, coming down off those mountains. Coming, a windstorm comes in through the lake. Now, have you ever been traveling somewhere and a rough storm just come out of nowhere? And uh, I don't know about you, but I'm not fond of traveling when there's rough storms on the road, right? Uh, I mean, the, wa- the, the road starts filling the, getting filled with water, you you hydroplane, you can feel the wind beating against the car, and it kind of sways, you have to really hold the steering wheel, make sure you're, you're staying where it needs to be. But imagine this scenario, except you're not in some secured uh, vehicle or even a, a modern boat, but you're in a sailboat with no, no overhead protection, no uh, real anchors, no stability. This is what you're in. And there's this massive storm, it's a windstorm that comes across uh, on this sea while they're going. 
Now, there's an ancient boat that was found in Galilee, and you can look up pictures of it. And they found it in the Galilee region. It's about 2,000 years old, almost pretty much still intact. You can see it if you go to Jerusalem. It's in a museum. But that's the kind of boat that Jesus and his disciples would have had. It's kind of interesting to see. It can hold up to 15 men. It was about 26 and a half feet long, 7 and a half feet wide, and 4 and a half feet high. So I say that so you can maybe kind of get some kind of a visual of this curved little boat uh, that can hold this amount of people, and it's just out there, on the, out there on the water. That particular boat was vulnerable, and the storm that came upon them appears to be very sudden, one that came without warning. Now, if they knew that a storm was coming, do you think that they would have ventured out to cross that long distance of a sea? Probably not, right? So they're not expecting this. It was something that was sudden that comes out on them as they're in the midst of the sea. Now, this is usually how storms of life come upon us, isn't it? They don't give us much warning. If we had warning for what we were getting ready to experience, we would probably prepare ahead of time, wouldn't we? But oftentimes, the storms and trials that we face, we don't get that luxury of knowing they're about to come, and therefore, they hit us in a very sudden way. We don't have a clue about the bad report that we might get from the doctor two weeks before we have that visit, do we? We didn't think our loved one would be shockingly taken from us. We aren't expecting the car engine to blow up the way, the, on the day that it did, right? We're not expecting these things that happen in our life. And so the reality from this is that we really don't know what tomorrow holds. Just as Proverbs says in Proverbs 27.1, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. So we've all experienced that. But notice letter B about this storm. Not only was it sudden, but it was also a severe threat to them. It's a severe threat to them. Well, how do we see that? Well, we look at the storm and what it's doing to them. Now, some lighter storms could probably be handled fine. I mean, they've gone fishing in the rain. They can handle a little bit of wind. But this wasn't some gentle rain or just a little bit of wind that comes on them as they're out in the storm. This was a severe storm. You look at verse 23. It's so severe that their boat was filling with water, and they were in what? Danger. They're in danger. All right, this is, this is what's happening to them. Now, I don't get out on the water a whole lot in a boat. I don't have one, and I don't get the opportunity to do that a whole lot. But one thing I do know is that water is supposed to stay outside the boat. We all agree on that? Water stays outside the boat. Now, if the boat is taking on water, you better have your life jacket on ready to swim, or at least hold on to a life jacket if you don't know how to swim. That's, your, that's why it's called a life jacket. It's to save your life, right? I've seen several videos of people who are out on the lake having a good time, and their boats start taking on water. And uh, they're doing their best to save it, but it keeps going down, keeps going down, and they ain't got a choice, but we're going to have to bail. We're going to have to get somebody to come rescue us. So, so the disciples here understand they were in danger. There's, they're in danger, at least from their point of view. They are in danger. They are the ones in the middle of it. They are experiencing this. Now, I always like to try to put myself in the shoes of some of the people that are living in this day and time, what they're experiencing. Imagine I was Peter or John, and I'm in this boat. Water's coming in. The winds are raging, and it looks like this is the conclusion. This boat is going to go down. How would I react to that? How would you react to that? How would you respond in that particular situation? This is a real thing they're experiencing. Now, has a storm in our life ever made us feel like that, like we were in danger? Perhaps you felt like you didn't know, you really didn't see the end of this. How, how do I get through this particular 
season or trial that I'm experiencing. Maybe it looked very, very grim. This kind of thing has happened to every Christian at some time or another, and it's constant through the Scriptures. You read through the life of David and some of the psalmists, how many times did they feel like they were at their end, as if, as if death was gripping hold of them? Psalm 116.3, the snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol, or the grave, laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. This is a real uh, assessment and feeling in this person who is writing this. That's how the psalmist genuinely feels, and yet the Lord delivered him. One example I run across was Jonathan Edwards. Many of us know of him. He's one of the greatest American theologians in our history. But he was once removed from his congregation for something that was unwarranted, something he shouldn't have been removed for. But now he was without a church and had no income to provide for his family. He wrote a a letter to Reverend William McCulloch. It said, and he wrote in his letter, he said, I have now nothing visible to depend on for my future usefulness or substance of my numerous family. And he had nearly a dozen mouths to to feed. He had 11 children, you know, plus him and his wife. So Edwards, he is looking at the uncertainty of this, and his trust is entirely in the Lord through all of that. His faith was in God. Now, we could probably give testimony of a time when us in our own lives, we've experienced something that was very sudden and severe, and you didn't know exactly how you're going to get through it. That brings us to number two. This is, we've seen we see the, the problem of the storm. That's, that's what's come into the disciples' life here. But notice with number two, the perspective of the disciples. What's going on in their minds? What's going on with them? There's two things I want to point out. The fear of the disciples here was overwhelming to them. The fear of the disciples, or the fear in the disciples, was overwhelming. Now, in such an event where the storm has caused the boat to take on water, fear is a natural and human response. That is our natural and human response in any kind of storm that we go through. And you'll notice in verse 24, we see them come to Jesus, and what do they say to him? Master, Master, we are perishing! Exclamation point, all right? (laughs) That means it's urgent. This is an imperative thing, an important thing here. Master, Master, we are perishing. Why do they come to Jesus this way? Because in verse 23, this probably struck them as odd. What's Jesus doing? He's sleeping. He's sleeping. The disciples think they're on the verge of death, but Jesus is back there snoring, sleeping. We see this in Mark's account too, Mark 4.38. He was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? So they're saying, Master, we're perishing, but then they're also asking, Do you care that we're perishing? Jesus wasn't bothered at all by that storm. You know, anytime a bad storm came through when I was a kid, mom was always on edge and, you know, paying attention, listening to the, to, the, to the radar and everything, ready to snatch us kids and go to the basement. All the while, through all of the storm, especially in the night, guess who's got Z's going up in the air snoring? Dad, right? I mean, he could have slept through a tornado and he'd have never known what come through, right? David has inherited that. He sleeps through the storms like a baby. He didn't really, you know, it didn't really bug him. He didn't really fear the storm. Uh, I remember having a, a bad storm come through one night, and I was real young, and not real young, I was probably 10 or 11 or so, and I had just watched the movie Twister. <laughs> and I thought, man, this is it. 
there's going to be a tornado come through here, and it scared me to death. That enhanced my fear of the storm. But I want you to consider the, the feelings of these disciples. They have forsaken everything to follow Jesus. Think about this. They've forsaken everything to follow Jesus. They have seen him work miracles. They have preached, heard him preach about the kingdom and what is to come. They followed Christ expecting amazing things to happen because this is the Messiah we've been looking for. They've given everything to follow him, and yet in this apparent moment, they think it's all going to end in the sea. Think about that for a moment. They've forsaken everything to follow him for their future, and now right here they're thinking it's all going to end with drowning in the boat in the water. That's how our human thinking operates. So what actually is happening here with the disciples? I'll tell you what's happening with them. Fear has begun to govern their expectations and their thoughts. Now, how do we know that fear is an issue here? Matthew's account tells us. Jesus asked them specifically in Matthew 8.26, Why are you afraid? Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? That's really what it boils down to. The disciples allowed fear to come in and control their thoughts and their expectations about this circumstance. They are afraid of sinking and perishing. And I understand, that's a, that's a natural response. That's the response of the natural man, right? But when we look at the big picture of things, Christians are called to react, not in the natural man, but in the spiritual man, aren't we? The spiritual man is not under control of fear, yet how often does that happen to us? The spiritual man is meant to respond in faith. So the call upon God's people is not to live by fear, but by faith. Now, this does not mean that we will never be afraid. It's not a sin to be afraid. But it is a sin for fear to govern you and to take over you. David said it well when he wrote in Psalm 56, 3. And this is a great comforting verse. He says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. So there are moments when fear comes on us, but the turning point is what do we do with that fear? When, that, when we do get to a point where we're afraid, what do we do with it? David says, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. Because we all have things that we're going to fear. We're also going to come through troubling times, and we'll be consumed with that kind of fear. We ask why this is happening, or how could this happen? We ask why me and not another person. We panic and fret over our trouble, just as the disciples did here on the boat. But the great principle that we remember as a Christian is what Paul exhorted Timothy about. This is where we see a little bit of our Christian application. Look at, look at 2 Timothy for a moment, chapter 1, briefly, verse 6 and 7. 2 Timothy 1, verse 6 and 7, and notice this. He says, for this reason I remind you to fan, the flame of the, to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. What do you notice about the spirit of fear here? The spirit of fear is not given from God, right? But rather, he has given Timothy a spirit of love and power and self-control. Now, it seems that Timothy was somewhat timid and fearful, especially with ministry things, maybe even persecution. Paul encouraged Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel, be a partaker of the sufferings that I'm suffering for the cause of Christ. And Paul reminds him that the spirit of fear is not from the Lord. And so if we allow fear to linger, fear will inevitably control our mind. 
you let it linger. It is a subtle foe that seeks to dismantle our faith and turn our confidence away from the Lord into other things. Now notice with the letter B. We see the fear of the disciples was overwhelming, but the faith of the disciples was wavering. Because they have faith in the Lord, but right here, their, their faith is wavering. And what's going to happen with this? Now, what's the opposite of fear in this sense? It would be faith, right? If fear is controlling your thoughts, what does that do to your faith in that moment? It causes your faith to waver. What does it mean when your faith wavers? It's going back and forth. It's looking at this. It's looking at that and looking at this and looking at that, right? causes us to waver. It causes us to have all kinds of questions that run through our mind that are often very doubtful thoughts. And what does Jesus say to them as after he rebukes the storm and makes everything cease? By the way, what a miracle that would have been to see, right? In the boat, you fear you're about to die because of the wind and the waves, and Jesus just speaks a word, and it's absolutely calm, perfectly calm. Here's his question. His question is this, where is your faith? Where is it, disciples? Why does he ask them that? They already have faith, right? But where was their faith in that moment, in that circumstance, in that experience? Was their faith in the boat? Was their faith in having good weather to cross the sea? Was their faith in their own ability to sail that boat? See, that's what it boils down to is often when things hit us, we look at oh, can I handle this, or will this get me through, or this and this and this. We look at a thousand of things before looking to the one thing that we're supposed to be looking to. Their faith here, their reaction at this moment shows us that their faith was wavering even without the question from Jesus. The boat, the waves, the wind, the weather. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I've got several quotes from him. He speaks well on this particular passage. He says, anything that comes across our path and puts us in difficulty at once shows whether we believe in him and trust in him by our response and reaction to it. Good way of putting it. You know, when Jesus was on his way to heal the daughter of Jairus, you remember that account? Messengers came back, and what did they tell Jairus? They said, Jairus, your daughter's dead. Don't even, don't even bother Jesus any further. Let's not bother the teacher. He, it's too late. She's already gone. Now, if we got that kind of news, how would we react? We would be very sorrowful. We would mourn. We would probably think, I guess we shouldn't ask Jesus to go any further. But you remember what Jesus told Jairus at this moment? Understand, this is in the ministry of Jesus. He's doing miracles, okay? He says in Mark 5.36, Overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. Only believe. Now, this was going to be God's plan for this girl and for Jerry's in his home. This was a, a unique circumstance, but here's the point. He says to him, do not fear, only believe. You see, often we let what immediately we hear or experience plunge our faith, faith into the waves of wavering. But that must not be our immediate and first response, should it? So this per, per, the perspective of the disciples in this scenario is very much human, all right? We can identify with their perspective and what they're experiencing. And with it being human, it also gives us the spiritual lesson that we need. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm I'm very thankful that we have these accounts of men and women in the Bible who are very human in moments like these, that they are penned in Scripture for you and I to learn from, because we identify with their humanity. 
Peter, James, John, they weren't superheroes. They were average, regular people just like you and I. Changed only by grace. Notice with me number three in this text. I want you to see the providence of Jesus because this is really where it all comes together. Because we, we, we look at the problem of the storm. We can identify with things we enter into like that. We see, we, we see the, uh, the issue of the, um, the disciples, the perspective of the disciples. We identify with how they react. But now we see the providence of Jesus. And I want to point out two things about the providence of Jesus. The first thing I want you to see is that Jesus directed them into this storm. Jesus directed them into the storm. When we see the bigger picture of this scene, who led them onto the sea? Whose idea was it to get into the boat and go to the other side of the lake at that point in time? It was Jesus. That was his idea. Wasn't Peter's idea, wasn't John's idea. That was Jesus' idea. He says in verse 22, let us go across to the other side of the lake. And so in obedience to Jesus and trusting the leadership of Jesus, they set out, they launched out in the boat across the water. So here's what we learn from this. This testing of the storm was not an accident or a coincidence. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't believe in coincidence. I don't believe in luck. I don't believe in chance. I believe in a sovereign God who's over every detail. Every detail. Even the little details that we take for granted. There is only a sovereign, providential God who is all-powerful and all-wise in all that He does and all that He allows. Now, we have to understand that God does not lead, down, lead His people down a road of ease, free from troubling or suffering. It's the opposite. Following Jesus includes taking up a cross. Following Jesus includes you're going to have trial and tribulation. That's part of the Christian life. If you think the Christian life is going to somehow you can have it without those things, you're kidding yourself. The Christian, Christian life includes tribulation and suffering, trial. And the great thing about this is that Jesus leads us into testing in his great infinite wisdom to test the very gift that he's given to us, which is faith. Now, go with me, if you would, to James chapter 2. Excuse me, James chapter 1. This is a passage you really can't ignore when it comes to this subject, right? God gives the gift of faith, and then that faith is put to the test. And I believe this, that a faith that can't be tested is a faith that can't be trusted. This is fundamental to the Scriptures. James 1, verse 2 through 4, notice what James says in this very practical book for these Christians. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, I don't know about you, but when I get into a trial, I'm not hopping for joy. Are you? I'll just be honest with you. I have the human response. This is part of Christian, church, Christian maturity and growth that we learn this sort of thing. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What does James call these various trials? He calls them specifically the testing of your faith. That's what trials are about. They test your faith. Faith in the God who loves you, who redeemed you, who's with you, who's given you His Word. Our faith in Him is being Tested. Our faith in his purposes is being tested. This is why trials come upon us. 
And so he says to count it all joy when you come to these kinds of trials, knowing this, that the testing of your faith, it produces steadfastness or patience, and steadfastness in its full effect brings us on to be perfect and complete like nothing. This is about maturing us, maturing us in our faith. Now, the disciples were sure to experience trials, and we see that happen to them on more than one occasion. You're going to experience it, too, on more than one occasion in a variety of ways. So don't think if you've come through a trial, you think, oh, I'm free. You're going to go to another one. It's inevitable. But no matter what kind of testing you experience, you can rest assured that God has led you there for His glory and for your good, even though it may not be so pleasant in the midst of it. William Cowper said this, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. That's a wonderful way to put it. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Now, I think this is interesting too. Isn't it interesting that Jesus went to sleep on the boat? Why do you think Jesus is sleeping? Well, one, yeah, he's human. He needed physical rest. He'd been ministering all day. But I think there's another reason. During the test is when the teacher is always most silent. You ever take a test in school? If you're in a regular classroom, the teacher's up there talking, right? Teaching, teaching, teaching. But during the test, the teacher's not saying anything. You're the one evaluating. You're the one checking the boxes. You're the one uh, trying to assess the answer here. And that's exactly what we'll find even in our own trials of faith. And what should our response be in those trials of faith? It should be faith itself. Because in truth, our God, you understand, He never actually really sleeps. He's always watching His children. Always. Psalm 121, 1 through 4, listen to this. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Help come. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. You understand that you're in that category of his people. And God doesn't sleep on his people. He doesn't sleep because he doesn't need it, right? He's God. But I'm thankful that God has always got his eye upon us. Notice that Jesus, letter B, not only did he uh, direct them into the storm, but he taught them from the storm simply with one question, where's your faith? There's the lesson there. The lesson is in this. Where is your faith? It's a rebuking question, but what's Jesus want them to learn? He's wanting them to learn that they must not fear when the Lord is with them. Their faith is not a mere feeling, but rather a trust and needed exercise in their heart and mind. He asks, where is your faith? That's the central question. Jesus is teaching them that their faith needs to be applied personally. Their faith needed to control their thoughts and settle their hearts in this moment. Like David, when he was persecuted by King Saul. Just read this this morning, and it just fit well with today. He says, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings... I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. There's a lot we could take from that passage, but you look at David and his refuge is who? It's the Lord. What does that mean when he's saying that? 
That's his faith being written out. My refuge is you. That's faith directing his heart upward to God. He says that in the shadow of the Lord's wings, he takes refuge. It made me think of, of a mother eagle whose, whose, whose younglings are under her wings. And that mother eagle protects those that are under her. They're under the shadow of her wings. And the same is true of the Lord, that we are under the shadow of his wings. And so we cry out to the Lord Most High. We take refuge till the storm passes by. But notice this also, that he knows, David knows, that God is going to fulfill his purpose for him. And I think that is probably one of the key things that we need to understand in everything we experience. Is God fulfilling his purposes in our life? Because that's what life is really about. It's about his purposes, not mine. It's about him. When it comes to these kind of situations, we're often carried away with our immediate feelings, which are driven by either fear or faith. Fear will easily carry away us away into despair, but faith is much more than just a feeling. Understand that. Feeling is included in our faith, but feeling is not faith itself. There's a lot of people who, who major on feeling, feeling, feeling today. But if that's all you're majoring on, you're going to miss the, miss the picture here. Martin Lloyd-Jones again says this, Faith is not a matter of feelings only. Faith takes up the whole man, including his mind, his intellect, and his understanding. It is a response to truth. So it's not just about feeling something. It's about confidence. It's about persuasion. It's about trust in something tangible, in something real, in something reliable. And so our faith, understand, is a direct response to the truth of God and his word. This is what your faith is grounded upon. It is on the scriptures. This is what you go to that, it, that, that gives you faith and increases your faith. It is the scriptures. You understand, we believe a lot of things that we read of in the scriptures, but you haven't seen those things. We believe in eternal life in heaven, but have you seen it? No. Well, how do you know about it? Faith. Faith. Paul said we walk by faith, not by sight. If we walked by sight, we would be constantly tossed back and forth in our thoughts and reactions. But faith is a firm response based on truth that we must exercise. We take hold of our thoughts and settle them upon God and what is true. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is what? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. No one could ever convince me the opposite of the gospel. Why? Faith has taken root in it. Christ, I've not seen him physically, but faith has grounded me in his truth. Faith is what makes us different, friends. Charles Spurgeon said this, We have no more faith at any time than we have in the hour of trial, our trial. All that will not bear, the te- to bear to be tested is mere carnal confidence. You see, faith refuses to panic, and fear plunges us into panic. Faith takes hold of truth and reasons with what is true and real from God and His Word. And here's the great problem of this scenario. The disciples reacted in fear of perishing while Jesus is with them in the boat. They reacted with great fear, and Jesus is there. He's right there physically. Didn't they know that he was the Messiah? Well, yeah, they believed he did. Didn't they know his power? Of course they did. If so, his presence is with them, and they have not kept in a composure of faith. They've given over to fear. 
So even at this moment, they're growing in their knowledge of Jesus and their faith is deepening. You look at verse 25 after he fixed it, fixed the storm, right? They ask the question, who then is this? Who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? I thought they already knew who he was. They're just learning more and more about the God who they know. That's really about how it is. You understand that I've been saved since I was seven years old, been preaching since I was 17 years old, and I still keep learning every day. And many of you have been saved a lot longer than I have, known the word longer than I have. I guarantee you, you're still learning every day, aren't you? We never stop growing in our faith. It's a constant thing until we die. It's amazing what we see here. They realize he's the creator. Jesus is... (laughs) He's not, a, he's not a, just a mere prophet. He is the Messiah creator, the one who made the winds and the water, and that's why they obey him. He has all power over, over, over them. He has all power over all things that threaten us. Let's bring to number four, the promises of God, or you could say the person of God. And just two things I want you to remember when it comes to us entering in our storms. I want you to remember this, that God remains God in the storm. He doesn't give up his deity. The disciples, they're panicking in fear. While they're panicking in fear, did the nature and character of Jesus change at all? Absolutely not. Did Jesus somehow become impotent? No. Was his plan to cross the sea the wrong plan? No. Jesus is the same no matter what our scenario might be because God is always the same. God never comes to a point where he's surprised by something, where he doesn't have an answer for something, or he somehow loses his power. He is eternally the sovereign king who governs every detail of our lives. And the sovereignty of God in that way, understand, that is my greatest comfort. If we serve a God who really wasn't under, under control of everything, have control of everything, I would be fearful. He doesn't have control of just some things. It's everything. He doesn't change in that matter, as Malachi said. I am the Lord, I change not. So we have to realize that whatever we're led into or allowed to experience, it is of the Lord. Romans eleven thirty six: from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You're going to experience a lot of things that are uncomfortable you wish didn't happen. But it's of the Lord. That flat tire you had, that for a reason, it's of the Lord. You impatient in traffic? God's timing. It's of the Lord. <laughs> Everything about our life, it's of the Lord. It, 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 it is under His providence. However hard or easy that may be in our eyes, it is under His providence. And our responsibility is to exercise faith in the Lord, trusting His sovereign hand. There's been so many times that I wish this day or this week had gone different, and then I get to the end of it, and I look back and realize why it went the way it went. I think, why did that have to happen today? Why couldn't I get this done today? And then eventually I come to the end and realize, oh, that's why. God knew what he was doing. Because this, his timing's perfect. And faith is so critical to our Christian life in this. And here's why it's so critical. Hebrews eleven six. This is why faith is so central to all of this. Without faith, it's what? It's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. See, God is always God in the storm, so therefore, always trust. Letter B, and lastly, God remains good in the storm. 
he's still good in the storm, even though what your storm is might not be so good. If God is good, then what he's doing in your life is for good. Now, it may seem that good has departed, but it hasn't, because his promises still remain intact, regardless of what you're experiencing. Remember these three promises, these three clear things when it comes to you in your life, whatever you're experiencing. Number one, your eternal life in Christ cannot change no matter what you're experiencing. If everything goes, goes crazy and you even die in the midst of the storm that you're going through, guess what? Your eternal life hasn't changed. You know why it hasn't changed? Because it's a promise of God before you were even born, before he even created the world you, ha- you were promised it. Titus 1, 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, before the world began. What God has decreed for us is fixed. You can't, you can't undo it. Secondly, God's presence is still with you. He's already told us that in Hebrews. Those suffering Christians told them to be content with what things they had. Here's one reason for them to be content, because God has said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Never. You know, never means never, right? I say this a lot to our kids. No means no. Well, never means never. He'll never forsake us. Martin Lloyd-Jones again says, The one who has done the greatest thing of all for you must be concerned about you in everything. And though the clouds are thick and you cannot see his face, you know he is there. See, God doesn't just care about you getting saved and then, well, whatever happens in his life, you know, I'll pay attention here and there. No. God is intricately woven into everything of our life. Letter, letter number three, God is sovereign over your situation and working it for your good. Romans 8, 28, we know that those who love God, are, those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are the called according to his purpose. You understand that the storm we experience may not be good from our point of view, but it is beyond doubt that God is using it to work good in your life, especially in making you more like his son particularly. So the disciples understand God's working on them in this passage, and in his working on them in this passage, he recorded it to work on us in our life. That's what I love about the Scriptures. Now, they're not entirely in error here because they did go to Jesus, didn't they? They did so in great fear and panic. This is a great growing experience for them. We're going to have experiences like this in our time as well. But Jesus, he asked them, and so he asks us today this question, where is your faith? Where is it at? So we ask ourselves, do we respond in fear or faith when it comes to things that are uncertain and out of our control in our trials and storms? I want to encourage us to look to Jesus and trust him in every little thing that we face and we experience in life. And so that's that's... That's the encouragement for us tonight.